we're going to do our best to, to look as much as we can. Um, <coughs> so with that being said, what we have here is, is a continuation of what we talked about two weeks ago in the previous section, um, that we, are all, we, we all suffer, we should expect to suffer, that is a part of the Christian life, um, but that should not get us down, right? But that we should be relying on the Holy Spirit to strengthen us through those times of struggle. And so then this extends beyond just our suffering, but Paul continues this to say that the Spirit is going to help us even in our prayers when we don't know what to say. And so, um, praying poorly is a weakness that we have. I think we all have it. We all um, are plagued with it from time to time. And it is something that we all suffer from. And so what Paul says here is, in verse 26, right? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is, in, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we're going to take this first, right? This idea that we don't even know what to pray. We should know what to pray. Jesus laid it out for us quite clearly. And Ted um, is sort of uh, hinted on that. When you look at Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us a layout for prayer. He says, look, if you are going to pray, this is what you should be doing. This is the order in which you should do it. Um, not, and, and he's not giving us necessarily what to say, but he's giving us the formula by which to pray by. And so um, if we look at that, and we're not, I'm not going to go through all of it, but just, I just want to give a few examples because it, it becomes obvious when we study the Lord's Prayer and then when we listen to ourselves pray, we realize, oh yeah, like, I'm not always doing it well. Um, and so the first thing he tells us is that we are to pray to the Father. Now this is an interesting statement. Why, why the Father? Why not the Son? Why not the Spirit? Why is it that Jesus is telling us that we pray to the Father? The Father and the Son are one. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. They are one God, but they are in three parts. And yet, still, Jesus gives us this very clear statement, right? Um, Paul echoes it in Ephesians. He says, I bow my knee and lift my, lift my voice to the Father. Um, and so there's, there's multiple places throughout the New Testament where we get this idea. And this, this, this is something that I think is really, really important in, in, a, in a sense of um, the, the symbolic nature of what is happening here. So, for instance, if we just lift our prayers to God and say amen, if, we, if we're in the presence of, you know, of, uh, of a Jewish person, like in their belief, and you lift your prayer to God and say amen, is that offensive to them in any way? Not necessarily. But if you lift your prayer to the Father and you pray in Jesus' name, then all of a sudden, wait a minute, we're not praying to the same thing here. We're not doing the same thing here. And they recognize that. And they know that. There's been this little bit of a weirdness, you know, in the hospital where I work. It's like, there's like this encouragement. They can't tell us not to pray in the name of Jesus. But there is this strong encouragement for us as chaplains to not pray in the name of Jesus. Because, well, that, that might offend the person who doesn't believe in Jesus. To which I say, I don't care. I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus every time I pray, no matter who's in front of me. I don't care who it might offend. And so when we, when, really, on a practical level and on a very strong theological level, 
You pray to the Father, you pray to the Son, it's all the same because they are one. But on this symbolic level, we pray to the Father in the name of the Son and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what we're seeing in this verse, that the Spirit is guiding us when we pray. And so the first thing that we see is that this is what we want to do, right? We don't want to lift up a Unitarian prayer, dear God, blah, 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 amen, right? But Father, we approach you in the name of Jesus by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. When we pray under, under those terms and, and under that understanding, what it does is the process of prayer itself actually does something to us. It act, we're actually teaching ourselves on a regular basis. This is who, who God is. This is the Trinity. This is important that all three members of the Trinity are, are playing their own specific roles in our prayers. And so this very first thing that we see that we would pray to the Father is important. Secondly, our prayers should always begin with praise. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. How often do we say, Father, here's my list of things, right? Dear God, dear Father, here's all the things that I need you to do, and here's all of the problems in my life that I really need help with, and we skip this. We forget completely that the first thing that we do once we address Father God is that we bring praise to his name. Every time, like this is the formula. This is what we're supposed to do. <coughs> the next thing that Jesus tells us, thy will be done as it is in heaven. Now I'm not going to go through the whole Lord's Prayer, right? I just want to bring up a few things. But do, have you ever thought about that statement? How is the, is the Lord's will done in heaven? Do you think he has committee meetings with the angels? He asks their opinions. You know, I'm thinking about doing this. And let me get everybody's opinion about whether this is the right way to do it or not. And do you think God is ever outvoted by... I mean, that's nonsense, right? We think of that and we think, wow, that's really stupid. Nobody would do that. That's silly. I mean, nobody thinks that that's how God operates. God declares, he decrees, no matter what the angels think, he doesn't, he doesn't consult them. Right? He is God. And when we pray properly, we say, God, we want your will to be done on earth the same way that it's done in heaven. He doesn't have to consult us. He doesn't have to ask our opinion before he does something in our life. Now, we don't ever complain when that thing that he does is a blessing. Right? But we do tend to complain when it's not when it's a suffering, when it's a hardship that God has laid on us. You see, oftentimes we forget, right? We forget to do this. We forget to bring praise. We forget to qualify our, our requests of God because there's nothing wrong with making requests. But we forget to qualify those things with, but you know what? I'm asking you to do this, but your will be done and not mine. So then, what happens, right? If we're praying and we're not doing it right and we're forgetting these elements and we're not doing it and we're not bringing praise to the Lord, what happens? What happens when we skip these things? What happens? Does God just ignore us? Well, you didn't follow the formula, so I guess you just don't get to be heard today. That's what Paul is telling us. When we don't pray the way we ought to, the Spirit intercedes for us. When you go, Father God, I need you to do this right now. The Spirit chimes in, like, okay, it, 
he forgot to bring you praise and he forgot, he, he forgot to, to, to qualify this statement with the will be done and the spirit is interceding and saying, you, you know this child of yours, you know that he loves you, you know that he, that he believes that you are good and so he's interceding when we are praying improperly. Now, I don't know about you, but until I studied this this week, any time I ever thought about this verse, I always thought about it as, well, the person who doesn't know what to say. It's the person who, I mean, for instance, I, I, was, get, I was on call last night, get called in the hospital. You know, family is here visiting. Um, they came with five people, and they're going to leave with four. And this was completely unexpected for them, right? You have a lady who just all of a sudden turns sick and is not going to make it. And the family is in shock. And they don't know what to do. And they don't know how to do anything. And they don't even know how to pray in that moment, right? That's a big part of what my job is. I, I, I enter into the family and, I, and I, I pray with them. I pray for them because they just don't know what to say. And when I thought about this verse, that's what I always thought about. Oh, it's when, we're, it's when we're in such grief or such turmoil that we don't know what to say. And that's when the Spirit is interceding for us. And I believe that that's true. But I also believe that it's true that when we goof, right, that when we pray to the Lord and we forget the formula, we forget the proper way in which we should address God the Father of the universe, when we arrogantly go to him and expect him to do things, God is not holding the lightning bolt ready to strike us down, right? The Spirit is there and he's interceding for us. He's helping to make sure that those prayers, when we don't do it right, are being lifted up to the Father in a proper way. So that's the encouragement. That's the challenge, right? That we would be praying all the time in the right way. But even if we don't, the Spirit does His job and intercedes. Now you might be thinking, well, then what's, why do I care? Why follow the formula? Why would I worry myself about making sure I say hallowed be thy name, making sure that I give this qualification, thy will be done, and not my own, if when I make those mistakes, the Spirit will just intercede and do it for me? That's like saying what we looked at at the beginning of this chapter. Well, if we're no longer condemned, why don't we just sin? The process right? The process. It's not so much about God hearing and answering your prayer, but the prayer itself, the process humbles us. If you remember every single time you pray to bring God praise far before you ever make a request, far before you ask for that daily bread, you spend 30, 45 seconds a minute bringing his name praise, what does that do to you? It reminds you of how good he is. It's the process of prayer that brings about sanctification, that humbles us. Because it's only when we go to the Lord with a prideful heart that we go to him asking for things, expecting him to do what we say over what his will would be done. It's really hard at the end of a prayer to think, I expect you to do this if we actually prayed the words, but your will be done and not my own. It reminds us. That this is important. So this process of praying through these things in order is a good thing. Uh, I would, Just this week, the Lord showed me all kinds of stuff this week that really relate to this. My kids, were they found a bunch of boxes, right? If you're anything like us, you get an Amazon box, you open it, and you throw the box on the front porch, right? It doesn't make it to the trash can for weeks. Um, and so all these boxes are out on the front porch. And the kids brought them in, and they're painting them. 
I don't know why, right? And I'm, and I'm like watching them do it, and I'm thinking, what are they doing? Why, why, why you know, Elizabeth was like able to actually paint the scene, but Caleb is just, you know, he, he's just painting. And I said something to Jennifer, and I said, well, you know, man, I don't understand what, what, like, what the purpose, what's the point, why are they doing this? And she explained, there's something, you know, it's called process art. It's not about the finished product. It's just about doing it. They enjoy the process of painting it. Who cares what it looks like at the end, right? And I think that should be our attitude towards prayer. It's the process that is bringing about the sanctification. It should be more about all of the other aspects. The asking for your daily bread, the asking God to do something, is one very small part of that prayer. It's only one portion of a, of a fairly lengthy prayer with a lot of different things going on. It's about this process. So don't think to yourself, well, if the, Lord, if, if the Spirit's going to intercede anyway, I won't worry about it. The process sanctifies us. It's not that the result is inconsequential. It's not that we don't, we, when we make a request of the Lord, that we say, well, I don't really care if he, if he honors it or not. But it, it becomes less important to us. The, the request itself becomes less important when we learn and we understand how to pray properly. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, okay, so then, what is it, like, the Spirit is hijacking my prayers? Like, I prayed for my mom to be healed. Like, that's what I want. That's what I wanted to say. What is, what is this? What's going on? The Spirit is allowed to just come in and take over and say whatever He wants and, and make sure it lines up with God's will, right? It's a silly thing when you say that out loud. You think, oh, I would never say that. But it tends, it, it can be our attitude, right? We are tempted to have that attitude about prayer. Maybe it's, maybe not so much anymore, but like that temptation is there. Why? Because we think too much of ourselves. We think that we know what is good and what we should get and the result of whatever this thing is in our life. We think we understand and that we know what would be good and what would be right for us instead of trusting in God. And all of that, I think, boils down to we know verse 28. I mean, I bet you every one of you have heard that a hundred times and most of you have it memorized, right? We know it, but we don't believe it all the time, especially when we go to the Lord in prayer, especially when we expect him to do what we want him to do versus what we know his will would be, right? Because verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You see, we pray our requests and we expect God to comply because we think we know. But the truth is the opposite of that. We don't know what is good for ourselves. I mean, outside of the God leading us, everything we ever did was what was bad for us. It's only when we have the Holy Spirit that we can even sometimes glimpse and have a grasp on what is good for us, on what the right thing is for us to do. That's only because God is leading us into that. You see, our sight is so limited. Our understanding is so minuscule compared to God's knowledge, compared to what God sees in this world. And the, the examples are limitless. Right? And a lot of the times, we will never even know that God has done something good for us because we never see what would have happened. Just a very simple example, right? You're driving into work, 
Speed limit is 60 miles an hour. The guy in front of you is going 50. And you very gently and very calmly and lovingly ask that he would go faster, right, to your windshield, as if that's going to help. Um, this is what we do. We get angry about things like this. We get fr- I mean, I, I'm not going to put it on you. I get angry about things like this. I get frustrated about things like this. And I forget that everything that is happening is for my good because I am a person who loves God, right? He has given me love. I love him. And so I, here's the thing. If the slow person had not been in front of me, who knows, right? I would have been further down the road. Maybe somebody pulled out in front of me. I would have been in a wreck. Maybe I would have hit a deer. Maybe I would have got a ticket. There's n- and that's the thing. You'll never know what God is doing in those situations, And so it's not about, well, I will believe verse 28 when I see the fruits of it. I will only believe that God is doing something good when I see the good come out. That's not what it says. We have to believe in all circumstances that what God is doing is good in our life. Even when we never see the good, right? This is the promise that is being made here. And now we need to ask a very important question. What is being defined by good? Well, whatever God does, whatever he says, whatever he decrees, by definition, is good. So if we follow that logic, right? God's will, God's purposes, all of those things. These are good things. And so then we can understand what is good when we look to scripture. Right? Matt brought this up last week when he was praying. It is powerful verses, right? That we would rejoice always, pray continuously, and give thanks in all situations. For this is the will of God in your life. In a different place in 1 Thessalonians, he says that you would be sanctified. That God's will for you is that you would be sanctified. This is God's will for you. That those things happen. Do you think that those things are going to happen if your life is never met with struggle, with suffering, with pain, with illness. Those things bring out more prayer. Those things bring out more rejoicing. Even though it seems counterintuitive, it does. It's the hard things in life that bring about God's will most of the time. We are more deeply sanctified in the valleys than when we are on the mountaintops. This is what God has declared to be good. So we need to think of this verse and understand that God is bringing about good things for us in his terms, by his definition of what is good. And this is an interesting statement. That it is only for those who love God. For your unbelieving neighbor, God is not working things for their good. We were talking this morning in Sunday school Karen was talking about just the the overwhelmingness of the darkness that we know that the non-Christian lives in. And like how that can be consuming. And how it can, what it it does is it inspires us to want to go and share the gospel. And be more bold. Because we know the darkness they're living in. Not only they're living in darkness, but they're living a life that is not bringing about their good ever. This goodness that God is working is only for those who are trusting in him. It's only for those who love him. And that is further evidence, right, that the, that the, the, 
earthly blessings is not what God is talking about. Because how many of you, how many do, people do you know who hate God, who have a healthy family, who have a padded bank account, they're, they're financially well off, right? They have a nice home, their family's intact. Everything from the outside looks really, really nice and good. But we know from this verse that as a Christian, God is not working things together for their good. So the goodness cannot mean earthly blessings, physical blessings, nice family, whatever, big house, lots of money. That's not what God is talking about. The good that God is working in us is the spiritual maturing. You see... Those people who don't love God and they have all of this thing and all these things that look like they're put together, the minute that one of those things falters, they are ruined. Their life is over. They feel like everything is gone. They have no point. They have no reason to live. The, one, the person who hates God but has a, has a great and wonderful and healthy family, the moment that one of those kids gets sick or, God forbid, that they were to pass away, right, a child dying, as a Christian... We have the ability to weather that storm. The non-Christian, they put all of their hope in these things, and when it fails, they fail. Their entire life fails. There's nothing for them to place their hope in. You see, those things are, are a blessing from God, and they are good. I'm not trying to say that having money and he- healthy family, that these, are, that these are not blessings or gifts that God has given us. But this is not the good in which God is speaking of. Because for those of us who love God, we recognize that all of these earthly blessings are going to pass away. Your family, every one of them, is going to die. Now, you may not have to be there and endure that pain, but it's going to happen, right? You're you're not taking all of the money that you have with you. I mean, all of the things that we have right now that provide security and comfort for us, they will pass away. And what is left? For those who love God, all of the goodness that he has been working our entire life in us. And so I pose this question to you this morning. Do you believe that this is true? Not does it seem true based off of your circumstances. Not does it seem true based off of what you can see and perceive and understand. But do you believe this statement is true? Even when life seems to be falling down around you, even when things are not going the way that you wish, in those moments, do you believe that God is working your good through all of those things? This is a promise that he has made to us. It never goes away. It never falters. No matter what is happening, God is working your good through everything that is happening. Financial ruin the loss of a loved one. God is working those things for good in your life. You may not see it in the moment. You may never see it. But that, is, that, that doesn't define whether it is good or not. It is good because God has declared it to be true. You may never know. I don't know. I don't know if they're in heaven. God will, you, know, you get to have this sit down interview where you like, say, hey, remember that thing that happened to you that you never saw? Let me show you. I don't know, probably not. I mean, he probably doesn't explain himself in those terms. So you may never get to know why. But it's irrelevant if you ever get to know why. Do you believe the promise? 
And this promise is only for those who love him. Now Paul defines it, that classification, he defines it a little bit differently in the second half of the verse. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then he quickly in 29 to 30 tells us, explains to us, who. okay, so then who is it that is called? What does it mean for somebody to be called according to his purpose? So he gives us what is called the golden chain. Some people call it by different things. It's a cool name. I like it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, all of these things are working together, right? It is a chain of definitions, of of titles that have been put on to the Christian. Those who are called, God is working those things for good. So now we have, well, we're looking at it again and again. And again, right? We're back in this doctrine of predestination. We're back in trying to understand what does it look like for somebody to be saved. And so we have this chain of events. We have this chain of titles in which one is dependent upon the one before it. And I suspect this morning that if you're here and you agree with the doctrines of predestination, you might be like, all right, let's lay it down hard, right? Let's, let's, let's lay the hammer down. Let's be really, really pointed in what we're going to say. And for those who disagree with it, they say, well, let's, let's find a way to read these verses where we don't see predestination come out in them. Um, I don't want to do either of those things. That's, that's, I'm not here with an agenda. I am not here because I think that there is one way to think about this, and it's the only way to think about it. And if you don't think about it this way, like you are wrong, and I'm going to convince you. And I, I'm not up here, and I'm not, and I don't bring these things up on a regular basis because I have some agenda to convince everybody of, of to think the way that I do. It has nothing to do with that. Number one is in the, is here, right? I'm not going to skip over it either. When, when we run across it, when the ideas of predestination come up in God's word, we're going to deal with it. I'm not going to skip over it. I, you know, I'm not going to shy away from it. Number two, and this is one that I hear quite a bit, and that is, well, we're, just, we're never going to figure it out. We're never going to know. We're never going to have full clarity on this. Like, why are we keep talking about it? What's, and, and I get that, and I understand that perspective, but here's the thing. Like, we should, we should, our entire life, be trying to understand God's word more and more and more deeply, right? You're never going to be fully sanctified. This glorified that we see at the end of this verse, that's happening when you get to heaven. You recognize, I recognize, we're never going to be perfect. We don't say, well, I'm just going to stop trying. We pursue righteousness and we pursue sanctification our entire life into our dying breath, even though we know we will never fully reach it. We should pursue every theological doctrine until our dying breath. Even if we, I mean, I'm like 100% sure that I'll never understand this idea of predestination and free will. And how do they work together? And what is going on? And which one is the right one? I don't think I'll ever know. But I'm not going to stop trying. 
I'm not going to stop pursuing it. I'm not going to stop thinking about it um, because it's a, it's a doctrine of God. We should always be trying to think deeper about this, trying to understand it more and more and more. So it's here. We're going to look at it. We're going to explore it. And I think I've made it pretty clear where I stand on this. And so if you, if you disagree with me, I, I hope this doesn't, I, I don't know. I, I'm not trying to create conflict. I just want to preach from my conviction and what I believe to be true. And so I'm not trying to, this is not an attack on anybody who disagrees. It's just, this is what I believe. This is how I read it. This is how I see it. This is how I understand it. And this is how I plan to present it. And so, and, and, and really, this whole golden chain focuses and is, and is um, the, the different paths that we take come off of this very first word, right? That God foreknew. So what is it that he foreknew? Now, I have lots and lots of friends who I have lots of good conversation with who, um, who believe in the idea that, that salvation is offered to everybody and man has a choice. And so this idea of foreknowing is that God foreknew who was going to choose. And so the ones who would choose him, he looks down the corridors of time, or what, you know, it's a phrase I hear a lot, um, that God foreknew who would choose him, and those are the ones who have been predestined. Those are the ones who are the elect. And if, well, when we just read verse 29, this is a viable reading of that word, right? I mean, the reality is God foreknows everything. If man makes a choice, then God foreknew that choice. Of course he did. Um, if, it could also mean that God foreknew who he was going to predestine. Right? There, Paul doesn't explain himself here very well. I mean, he doesn't. And so w- if we want to understand what this foreknowledge is necessarily applying to, we have to take a wider scope. We have to back out a little bit, and we have to look at a bigger context. And so if we look at, the, at, at chapter 8 as a whole... And we ask this question, what is it that God foreknew? And I don't know, this may not be helpful to you, but this is how I process things in the Bible that I don't quite understand. Or that I'm trying to come to terms with and and trying to dig in deep. Is that I just try to put them in very real life, like very pragmatic. Okay, so John Smith walking down the street, right? Not a Christian. If the foreknowledge is that God looked down the corridors of time and saw that John Smith when he's offered salvation, he would accept it. So then, therefore, he becomes predestined. That would mean that that, that guy, in, while he's walking in the flesh, which is what we saw earlier in the chapter, while he's walking in the flesh, had to be able to submit to God's law. Because one of God's law, one of his commands, is that we repent and believe. Right? Unfortunately, verse 7 of chapter 8 says that that is not possible. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not to submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so that's where I struggle with understanding foreknew or foreknowledge in that terms. That somebody, before they become a Christian, would be able to submit to God's rule that they would do something that is pleasing to God, which verse 8 says is not possible, that they would be able to understand the gospel in such a way that they would be able to accept it, which Romans 3 also tells us is not happening within the person who is not saved. And so when I look at the word foreknowledge or foreknew, and I'm trying to understand what is it that Paul is, is addressing here, 
That understanding of foreknowledge seems to come into pretty strong conflict with other things that we have read in the book of Romans. When I think about it in the terms of God foreknew who he would predestine before the beginning, before they were created, all of that, like that God had picked those people out, that God knew what was going to happen with Adam and Eve, that God knew he was going to send his son, that all of that foreknowledge is there and it applies and he knows the people whom he is going to save. I don't find that understanding of foreknowledge in conflict with anything else that I've read in the book of Romans. Now, I'm not saying that that's absolute, right? I'm saying that I, I don't see it. It doesn't mean that it's not there. This course, at this point in my life, in my journey, and in my study of this doctrine, I have not found it. I've not found, I've found conflict with God foreknew looking down the corridors of time, but I don't find conflict with that God just foreknew whom he would predestine. And here's the really important thing that I want to say this morning. I don't care if you agree with me. It's not about agreeing with me or anybody else or the leadership that's coming in. That is irrelevant. Do you agree with the Bible? That's all I am concerned with. Do you agree with what God's word says? And, and this is not something that I am accusing anybody in this room of doing, but it is something that I have seen many, many, many times in my life. Having this discussion people that I know who, do, who disagree with predestination, what they say to me is, that's, that's mean. What? That's not, I can't believe that. God's, there are people who are born and go to hell and never have the chance to be saved because God doesn't, he, they're not predestined. That's not right. Absolutely it is right. What sends people to hell? God no, their sin is what sends them to hell. The fact that God would save anybody on this planet is his grace and his mercy. He is gracious and merciful to save any one of us. If people are born and never given the chance to, to, to hear the gospel and understand it, that is not an injustice or an unkindness on God's part. That is people getting what they deserve. If you are here this morning and you love and trust in Jesus, it is not because you deserved to have that chance to believe the gospel. That's not what is going on. Is God's grace and his love and his mercy being poured out on you when you didn't deserve it. So if you're here and this morning and, and, and that's how you understand foreknowledge, that is totally okay. We can, we can disagree on this and that's fine. I'm not asking you to agree with me, but don't you dare believe it because you think it's unkind of God. Don't you dare believe it for any other reason than you said, I have studied my Bible deeply and that's where my conviction lies because the Bible teaches me that. If that's what you say, that's great. We are in perfect communion. But if you say, that's gross, that's not nice, that is unkind of God, that's not a good reason. In other words, you're saying, what I think is better than what God thinks. So if we have been Foreknown, we have been predestined. And this chain ends in something that is extremely comforting for all of us. Because you see, there is a reality about who we are, 
about our identity, that we are glorified, and it hasn't happened yet. It doesn't take a genius to look at the word and recognize that this is in the past tense. This is a reality that God has promised that will happen without question. And yet here we sit, excuse me, in our sin. Every day we think, I don't feel glorified. I feel dirty and rotten and sinful and evil. You, you, God, don't you, don't you know the things I have done? How could you possibly label me as glorified? That just seems completely broken. But this is the promise of God. This is the future that is guaranteed to everyone who loves Christ. Everyone who is trusting in Him, who believes in Jesus, who puts their faith in Him, who knows, right, that you are no good, right, that your sin needs to be repented of, that you need to believe on Jesus. When you believe that, when you love, when you love God and you trust in Him, this is your reality. This is what is true. You have already been glorified. doesn't matter if it feels that way or not. That is the truth. You can rest assured, no matter what comes in your way, no matter what suffering might come, no matter what trial might come in this life, God has made a promise to you that in heaven you will be glorified. In the new creation, when we are receiving new bodies and all of the glorious things that you see at the end of the book of Revelation, that you get to be a part of that. But first, you must bow the knee. You must repent. You must believe in Jesus. And when we do that, that glorification is promised to us for eternity. You can take that to the bank, as they say, right? This is a promise of God. Nobody can take that away from you. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can interfere with that. So I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you're going through. But I, I challenge you. These two promises, they're hard to remember, right? Verse 28, and then this idea of being glorified. God is working all things for good. If you are loving in Him, if you are trusting in Him, if you are His child, if you are a brother and sister of Christ, you are in the family, and nobody can take you out of that. Nobody can separate you from that. These are promises. If you don't that's why, that's why I say I, I had so much more than I normally do. These are some of the, the strongest promises in all of Scripture. These are, the, these are some of the sharpest tools that we can have on our belt. Because we face things that most people, it would destroy them. And without Christ, it would destroy you too. But because of these promises, we can face all of that with our head held high with hope for the future, knowing that one day that glorification that God has promised us will come about. Let's pray. <coughs> Father God, we love you. You are so gracious and kind and wonderful to us. You give us far more than we deserve. Father, I come to you this morning. My prayer and my hope for all of us in this room 
is that we can believe these promises. Lord, that we would trust in you, that when you make a promise like what we have read, that we know that it can never be broken. No matter what is happening, you are doing and working things out for our good. No matter what happens, no matter how bad we mess up when we trust in you, our glorification is guaranteed. It is so set in stone that Paul puts it in the past tense as if it has completely and already happened. That's how sure your promises are for us. Father, help us to believe them. Help us to grow deeper in them, to understand them more fully. God, we love you and we thank you for Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.